0: Hello, I'm Abram Van an English professor at Washington University in St. Louis.
1: And I'm Joanne Diaz, a poet and English professor at Illinois Wesleyan University.
0: And this is Poetry for All.
1: This podcast is for those who already love poetry and for those who know very little about it.
0: In this podcast, we'll read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time.
1: Today, we thought we'd talk about an elegy by Anne Bradstreet called In Memory of My Dear Grandchild Elizabeth Bradstreet. Shall I read this poem, Abram?
0: Yes, please.
1: Okay. In memory of my dear grandchild, Elizabeth Bradstreet. Farewell, dear babe, my heart's too much content. Farewell, sweet babe, the pleasure of mine eye. Farewell, fair flower, that for a space was lent, then taken away unto eternity. Blessed babe. Why should I once bewail thy fate, Or sigh thy days so soon were terminate, Sith thou art settled in an everlasting state? By nature trees do rot when they are grown, And plums and apples thoroughly ripe do fall, And corn and grass are in their season mown, And time brings down what is both strong and tall. But plants new set to be eradicate And Bud's new blown to have so short a date is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate.
0: Thank you for that. So to get into this elegy, I think it's important to know, first of all, who Ambrastie is. Uh, She was a Puritan poet writing in the 1600s in New England. She's the first woman from British North America to publish a book of poetry in 1650 called The Tenth Muse. And when we think of a Puritan writing poetry, I think one of the things that's important to understand is that so much of their religious life was, in fact, struggle. It was a struggle with themselves and their own sins, but also a struggle with how to love a God that seemed so often incomprehensible to them. And I think a lot of that is going on in this poem where she's trying to figure out how to love, how to find comfort in how to find consolation in a God that is, in fact, uh, seeming to do some quite terrible things like take take a grandchild away who's just been born. So when you think about this poem, we mentioned that it was an elegy up front. What is an elegy and what is what is that tradition?
1: So that's a really broad tradition that goes from ancient Greece to the present, and traditionally it comes in many forms right now we have it in a sonnet form from Anne Bradstreet. But it doesn't have to be in a sonnet form; it could be in free verse, it could be a long narrative poem um, but it's generally it's a poem of deep grief and loss. typically, it's the loss of a person through death. But it could be the loss of a place or a feeling, too. It's, it's, it, it can encompass a lot of different experiences. But typically, it's deep grief over the death of another person. Quite often, elegies speak to the dead, try to bring back the presence of the dead. Quite often, elegies span in their emotional range from rage and denial, uh, to ultimately understanding of the profundity of death and consolation. And there are many formal and rhetorical elements that we can talk about with elegy, but generally speaking, that's what we mean when we say elegy.
0: That's great. Yeah. And just to build on that, to think about what it is in this poem that brings the force of mourning, of weeping to the front. I think there's two aspects to think about with this elegy. Um, One first is the idea of repetition. I think repetition is really powerful in this poem. There's three farewells that begin this poem. Farewell, dear babe. Farewell, sweet babe. Farewell, fair flower. You say farewell three times when it's really hard to say farewell, Um. when it's very difficult to get past that moment of saying farewell. And so repetition uh, is never just the repeating of a single word again. To say the same word again is to say something new each time using the same word. And the depth of the emotion becomes deeper and deeper with each repetition here. But even more so, I think one of the things you can do with this poem... So one thing to think about with poetry is to erase everything except one thing to look for. And in this poem, you can do that with nouns, verbs, adjectives, and so on. If you erase everything except the nouns in this poem, what you get are very seemingly lovely nouns. Babe, heart, content, pleasure, eye, flower, space, days, nature, trees, plums, apples, corn, grass, etc. It's all lovely things. It seems like it should be a poem about lovely things. Then when you look at just the verbs in this poem, they're all quite terrible. Was lent taken, should bewail, sigh, settled, rot, fall, moan. And so a lot of the tension of the poem is that these are not the kinds of verbs that should go with those kinds of nouns. And the fact of bringing those nouns together with these verbs brings out the sort of emotional power of the mourning that's going on in this poem. Yeah. When you look at um, the words of this poem, what do you notice about the adjectives that are happening here?
1: Right. So quite often we spend a lot of time when we read poems, we focus a lot on the nouns and the verbs because typically those are really supercharged parts of speech. You get the agent of action and you get the action itself. And so you feel like those are really foundational, elemental parts of speech. And then adjectives, you think they're more primarily descriptive, but there are two words in this poem that really turn me on to what she's doing, and that's terminate and eradicate. And she's using both of those as adjectives. We would say terminated or eradicated in 2020, um, but she's saying terminate and eradicate as adjectives. Why is that interesting? Because for me, when I read the first stanza, it says, Blessed babe, why should I once bewail thy fate? Or sigh thy days so soon were terminate, Sith thou art settled in an everlasting state. Well, when I look up terminate in the in the dictionary and I look up its origins, its etymology, I know that it comes from the Latin terminare, to mark the boundaries of, to demarcate, to determine the limits of. And I feel like that's such a powerful word for this poem because she seems to be trying to mark the boundaries of her grief and her loss, and she doesn't seem to be able to get a handle on it. She's able to say that word, but the poem doesn't seem to suggest that she's resolved her feelings on this, right? The other Mm -hmm. word that I love is eradicate or eradicate. So in the second stanza when she says, but plants new set to be eradicate, And buds new-blown to have so short a date is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate. As you said, Abram, sure, things grow in the world to their maturity, to their fruition, and then they die. But plants that are newly planted... To be suddenly eradicated, the word eradicate has in its root uh, radix or root, right? So to eradicate something is to pull or tear it up by the roots. It's a very violent word. And so for a new plant to be eradicated is so anathema to everything she has understood up until this moment. And it lands the poem in a very unsettled, uh, frustrated sort of tone for me. And I, I really like that.
0: That's so great. And, uh, you know, even thinking about those adjectives, which are happening in separate stanzas, begins to ask us why are there two stanzas even to begin with? Uh, it seems like this poem could be complete at everlasting state. That seems like a very orthodox kind of poem. She has come to the conclusion that this babe is in heaven. She shouldn't bewail anymore. All is set. All is fine. And yet the poem goes on. There's a second stanza. So often I ask students to think about what does this second stanza have to do with the first stanza? And at first it seems like she's completely changed the subject. Now she's talking about nature and the way things grow up and grow big. And then she flips it back again on its head uh, with those last three lines saying, "Why did this? why was this fair flower not allowed to grow up? And so one of the ways I think about Bradstreet's poetry is often a poetry of process. She is trying to process something. She is trying to get herself somewhere. And even that line, why should I once bewail thy fate, is a line of wailing. She's basically asking herself, why should I wail as she is wailing? Mm. And so she's trying to get herself some consolation here. And so often with her poetry, you will see it moving past the point of a kind of perfect and orthodox conclusion it keeps pushing it keeps asking but why god why god why is this happening Mm. Uh, and that's where the second stanza relates to the first so you have actually all these interesting ways that they weave together fair flower is a natural image that goes with trees plums apples corn and grass except that this fair flower was eradicated yeah and then you have the word fate which gets at the kind of question of this poem who is in control of this fate Why should I once bewail thy fate is in the fifth line of the first stanza, but then it ends by saying, is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate, and we end on that question of fate. Uh, And so there's all these ways in which the stanzas actually weave together.
1: That's helpful to hear you talk about that, because uh, we've talked about sonnets in other episodes, and we've talked about the sort of the formal constraints of the sonnet and how typically... The, you know there's a structure in which uh, there's a turn either between lines 12, 13, 12 and 13, or perhaps be- between lines eight and nine, depending on the kind of sonnet that it is. And this is the first sonnet that I've encountered that looks quite like this, where it's two separate stanzas of seven lines each in a very different rhyme scheme. But I, I like that symmetry because it means that she gets to put just as much time into the reassuring of herself in that second stanza, and and how incomplete it is, uh, as she does with that beautiful farewell in the first stanza.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're tracking individual words and individual rhyme schemes through this, so first of all, you have the odd oddity of a b a b c c c d e d e c c c. That's not a usual rhyme scheme for a sonnet. But then there's these internal rhymes as well. And so if you look at the second stanza, this incredible internal rhyme scheme that's based in the long O sound, which we often use for mourning. But if you pull out those words, what she says in that second stanza is groan, moan down, blown, alone. And with that one simple rhyme following through in the second stanza, she actually tells the whole story, the whole narrative of this poem, which is that a babe was grown briefly, then moaned down too soon, and blown away, and she is left alone. And so with the sound of mourning, she's actually telling the story of this poem again in the second stanza.
1: That is such an accomplishment in this poem that not only is she capable of creating this uh, unique rhyme scheme at the ends of the lines, but also within the lines. She's very attentive to sound. It's very impressive. So, Abram, after I read this beautiful second stanza, which I feel like I I have a grasp of what she's saying, I get to the final line, and I'm not sure what she's saying. Let me try to understand this. But plants new set to be eradicate and buds new blown to have so short a date is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate. I'm not quite sure I understand what is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate means. Could you help me with that?
0: There's two things to notice about that last line of the poem, is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate. First of all, it's too long. So the seventh line and the 14th line have 12 syllables in them, which gets again to that point of a process that is never complete, and in fact takes so long that it can't be fit in. But the other thing that it does is it does not have the word it in it. It's implied, but it's not implied where it ought to go. So there's two ways to think about that. The last line could be implied to read, it is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate." That's a kind of declarative statement. Or it could be, is it by his hand alone that guides nature and fate?" In other words, that last line puts her perfectly poised between a kind of statement and declaration of faith and an open question and doubt and struggle to believe in this God. Uh, And that's exactly where the whole poem is. And so by actually taking that one word out and leaving a kind of ungrammatical ending, she leaves the poem where it has been from the beginning, which is perfectly in between faithful love of this God and incomprehensible doubt of of, a God who would do this.
1: Hmm. With all of that in mind, would you be willing to read this poem again?
0: Absolutely. In memory of my dear grandchild, Elizabeth Bradstreet, Farewell, dear babe, my heart's too much content. Farewell, sweet babe, the pleasure of mine eye. Farewell, fair flower, that for a space was lent, then taken away unto eternity. Blessed babe, why should I once bewail thy fate, or sigh thy days so soon were terminate, sith thou art settled in an everlasting state? By nature, trees do rot when they are grown, and plums and apples thoroughly ripe do fall, and corn and grass are in their season mown, and time brings down what is both strong and tall. But plants new set to be eradicate, and buds new blown to have so short a date, is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate. Beautiful
1: poem. Thank you so much. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you will listen to our others. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can follow us on social media. And you can visit our website for more information about this poem and others by Anne Bradstreet.